The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, as Rick mentioned here, 19 years ago, I entered Cairn University as a student. Uh, the world of biblical studies was totally new to me, just like many of you, I had to quickly learn how to balance my academic life and all my other priorities. And I had to especially learn how my spiritual walk with Christ related to every other thing I was doing as a student and as a young man. Uh, I prayed about what the Lord would have me preach on this morning and my thoughts continually returned to the book of Isaiah. And this is the message that I wish I would have understood as a student. And that's, that's why I kind of landed here. So Isaiah chapter one, please open your Bibles, first book, first chapter of the book of Isaiah. We are going to study the middle part of the chapter today. So as you're turning or finding the Bible on your phone or whatever you use, um, let me just kind of set the context a little bit for you here. Isaiah, as you know, was a faithful prophet of God. The opening verse in his book tells us that he was primarily focused on Judah and his ministry lasted at least 58 years. Just, just let that sink in for a minute, 58 years of ministry. I, I can only hope and pray that the Lord would bless me with some of that. Now in the first nine verses, Isaiah begins his book by calling the heavens and the earth to, to bear witness against God's indictment on his people, Judah. Remember, Judah is the southern part of Israel. At this time, Israel was split into two. And God says to Judah in those first nine verses that I raised you like my very own child, and yet you rejected me. God calls them a sinful nation, a people heavy with iniquity, a people, an offspring of evildoers. God gives a picture of, of what Judah will look like if she continues in her sin. The country is going to be destroyed, laid waste by the Babylonians. Judah would be exiled. And if God himself did not intervene in that judgment of exile, Judah would not have had a single survivor left. Her only hope of salvation was God. That's just the opening nine verses. Now the question that we are gonna wrestle with today is what did Israel do that warranted such a brutal condemnation from God? I mean, yes, we understand they were a, a people sinful with iniquity, heavy with iniquity, the text says, but what sin, what iniquity specifically is God so focused on here? What is it that is causing God to say these things to his beloved people. God says that her judgment would be so bad that if he didn't, by his grace, save just a few survivors, they would have been wiped off the face of the earth just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what did Israel do to deserve that kind of judgment from God? We're gonna start reading in verse 10, and very soon their specific sin will become clear, and I think it's gonna have great relevance for all of us as we begin this semester. So Isaiah chapter one, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now before we go any further, I want you to notice what God is doing here. 
Look at the clever wordplay that's being used. Look back at verse 2, just for a moment. Just glimpse back at verse 2. See how that starts? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And then, here, give ear, we hear again. First, God commands the heavens and earth to listen. And then, using the same exact language, God says, hear, who? O you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, what's absolutely essential for us to understand here is that God is not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. By the time Isaiah writes this, he is about a thousand years removed from the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah is speaking to Judah, to Jerusalem. He's calling God's people Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why in the world would God do that? I have the uh, strange misfortune of having a mother and a mother-in-law with the same first name. They're both named Kim. And like all people, both my mother and my mother-in-law have their own special, we'll call them quirks, character traits, right? Now, I've been married for 15 years to my wife, Janice. She graduated from Karen as well, and we've got a great relationship together. Whenever I catch my wife, Janice, doing or saying something in the style of either her mom or my mom, I might say to Janice, what are you doing, Kim? And then I go and prepare my place on the bed, on the couch for, for the evening, right? But, but as you can imagine, she just loves it when I do something like that. She's acting like Kim, so I call her Kim. May I suggest to you that it is much better to be called Kim than to be called Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel was acting so much like these sinful cities of old that God compares these cities to Israel, or compares Israel to them. And implicit in that comparison, we remember, is the way that those cities were judged. They were wiped off the face of the earth. And now God says, Judah, you people of Sodom, you, you rulers of Gomorrah. Now again, we ask, what in the world did Judah do? What did Judah do to cause God to call her Sodom and Gomorrah? And I've got to warn you, this is not going to be easy to hear. But it's good to hear. Look at verses 11 to 15. The Lord says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Let's let that sink in just for a moment. This is God talking to his beloved people, Judah. And God is listing here all their normal methods of worship. 
all the religious festivals and their holidays, all the things you would normally associate with godliness and religiousness, burnt offerings and sacrifices and incense, religious holidays like New Moon and, and Sabbath and the appointed feasts like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. And what does God say about them? Listen to the language of the text. This is the words coming from God. Verse 11, I have had enough. I don't delight in them. Verse 13, your offerings are giving in vain. Your incense is an abomination to me. I can't endure them. Verse 14, they've become a burden to me. I'm tired of bearing them. My soul hates them. How many times can you remember in Scripture God saying something like this? I, I mean, how many times can you remember God saying, like in verse 13, I cannot. Just think of the irony of that statement alone. The omnipotent God of the universe saying, I cannot. Or verse 14, that the omnipotent God of creation saying, I am weary. Or how about verse 14 at the end there? My soul hates. Let me tell you something. When the God of love when the God who defined the very essence of what love is, when the God who is love, when that God says, my soul hates, not just I hate, but, but he intensifies it by saying, my soul hates. When the God of love tells you that his soul hates something, that something's got to be bad. And then verse 15, when you spread out your hands, now that was a posture of, prayer and a posture of worship for a Jewish person. It's like God saying, when you pray to me, when you sing to me and raise your hands in worship, even though you make many prayers, God says, I will not listen. I am deaf and I am blind to your prayers. God says, you spread out your hands in prayer, but all I see are your hands full of blood. It's almost easy to think about this in relation to Israel because it's easy for us to say, think about those bad people back then. Can you imagine God saying something like this to this university? Just contextualize this for a minute. We, we don't still offer animal sacrifices, right? We don't still follow these religious festivals that we see and read here. We still don't observe new moon festivals or Sabbath, at least not in the same way the Israelites did. So imagine God using language that is relevant immediately to us. Think about what that would sound like in our ears, with our holidays, with our religious festivals. Here's the Brian Murawski translation for Cairn University. What to me is all those papers you turn in, says the Lord. I have had enough of your tithes. I don't delight in your spiritual gifts. When you come and check in and appear before me in chapel, it's like you trample over everything that is holy. Your worship songs are vain to me. Communion is an abomination to me. I cannot endure your Sunday morning services. My soul hates convocation and commencement. Christmas and Easter are a burden to me. I'm tired of having to endure them. When you pray, I gouge out my eyes so I don't have to watch you. When you pray, I stick needles in my ears so I don't have to hear you. You think yourself a prayer warrior, but you're really just a bunch of murderers. What has God's people done to endure, to have to endure such harsh 
condemnation from their Lord. Now you can already see God dropping hints here and there of, of what is really going on. They trample God's court, that's the temple. They have blood on their hands. Their offerings are in vain. But I think the end of verse 13 really sums up what God is driving at here. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Israel had an outward devotion. God was not accusing them of failing to show up to church on Saturday or Sunday for us. God wasn't judging them for forgetting to sacrifice. He wasn't judging them for giving, not, not giving the right portion of offering. He wasn't judging them for not observing religious holy days. They did all that, and they looked great. Outwardly, they looked really, really good, didn't they? They probably felt great about themselves, too, their own religiousness. Anyone looking in from the outside on the church of Israel, so to speak, would say, man, they are a real spiritual bunch. They've got good attendance. Their giving is off the charts. They dress nice. They, they say all the right religious things. This place is spiritual. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, Israel was kind of like the Sardis of Revelation. Jesus wrote seven letters to different churches in Asia at that time in the book of Revelation. And to one of those churches, the church of Sardis, you remember what Jesus said to that church? He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. God's people in Judah had a reputation of being religiously alive, of being godly on the outside, of doing all the right things according to the law, but it was indeed a religiousness that was mixed with a heart full of sin. They led worship on Sundays and they cheated on their exams on Monday mornings. They, they would offer the best looking sacrifices to the temple, but they would be empty and vain because their hearts were far from God. Students who come to Cairn, who study hard, get good grades, join all the right clubs, attend all the right services, do all the ritual stuff that makes them look like really accomplished Christians, but then leave with their hearts full of pride and arrogance and hatred and racism and bitterness and iniquity. That's who God is angry with here. We call them religious hypocrites. And I'll tell you, as much as our world hates religious hypocrisy, God hates it even more. It's all too easy for religious behaviors to become cheap substitutes for religious hearts or righteous hearts. To, to put it in Jesus' words, they are whitewashed tombs. They are cups that are clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. They are the church of Sardis. They have a reputation of life, but inside they are dead. They're the church of Laodicea. They're famous, they're rich, they're mega, and yet they're lukewarm. They're dead. They are the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are some of us. They are some of us. Jesus once said that many people will stand before him on Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works and mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But Lord, I kept your Sabbath. 
I observed the holidays. I gave my sacrifices. I, I went to church. I served in ministry. I, I faithfully tithed. I never skipped a class. I gave all my papers in on time. I even went to chapel more than was required of me. I mean, Lord, look at me. But God says all that is an abomination if it's done with an improper heart of worship. God hates religiousness without true sincerity. He wants nothing to do with that kind of bogus Christianity. And I've got to say, too, it is oh so difficult to check our hearts on this one, isn't it? Because the very person that God is speaking to usually doesn't recognize that God's speaking to them. They think that they've done enough to earn God's favor, to please the Lord. They think that they're righteous. Good litmus test is if you're hearing this sermon and you're thinking of somebody else, you're thinking of the person next to you, you're thinking of the person in that class, that person in your dorm, that person in your church, good indication that this is actually talking exactly to you. Self-righteousness is extremely difficult to self-diagnose because the very nature of self-righteousness is that you think that you are righteous when you are not. And yet what we're reading here is the very heart of the gospel. Christ came to heal the sick. While we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. The starting place of our relationship with Christ is not to recognize how good we are, how righteous we are, how much stuff we've done, how religious we can be. The starting place is a humble recognition of our inability to cleanse ourselves from sin and to fall upon the feet of Christ to do it for us. When we recognize our sin, we draw near to the cross. We realize that Christ died, and he, he died on our behalf. He has enacted for us what, what I like to call the great exchange. Jesus was perfectly righteous. We were awful sinners. Jesus took our sin upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness. How's that for an exchange? He took your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. And all that... You don't even have to earn. We accept it by faith. We believe. Not by religious showmanship do we get it. Not by rituals or human effort, but by faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. What a glorious gospel indeed. Isaiah 1 is a text that begs us to search inwardly and to search honestly. Because you can put on a show for your professor or your RA or your pastor, or even your roommate, but you cannot put on a show for God. God sees your heart. God knows exactly who you are. God sees this university. He knows exactly the character and quality of the people in it. And I'm not saying one way or the other whether God sees something negative or positive. I can tell you that the reputation outside this community is, is fairly good. I was going to the get my car um, registered the other day, and they heard that I was a professor at Cairn, and they started, immediately just started talking about you. The students from this university are so great, they said. That was really encouraging to me. Now, God knows whether that assessment is true or not. So we have to ask, what if this is us? What if this is us individually? What if this is us as a, a school? What is the remedy for such a diseased heart that Isaiah describes here. 
Well, in verses 16 and 17, God gives Judah nine imperatives, nine commands, nine things to do in order to address the problem of their religious hypocrisy. Let's take a look. Verses 16 and 17. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Nine commands in two verses. If you're looking for something good to memorize this semester, put these in your heart. Meditate on them. Deeply consider their place in your life. Wash yourselves, it says. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Now, clearly, God is not talking about just outward physical cleansing. I know we're only a week left, you know, week into the semester here. You're college students. Maybe the outward physical cleansing is something you will need to be reminded of towards the end of your semester. But in this case, we're talking about inwardly, spiritually, not talking about a shower or bath. I mean, the Israelites were already good at that other stuff. They did the religious stuff really well. They've already got the outward rituals down. God is saying, your heart needs changing. Your heart needs cleansing. And God commands him, go and cleanse your heart. Purify yourselves from sin. He says, remove the evil of your deeds. And that's going to indicate that they've done something internally. That's the evidence of repentance. This is not a works-based salvation God is talking about here. He's saying, here's a good indication that your heart has changed. Have you repented? Have you abandoned those sins? God says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. A couple months ago, I was memorizing this passage, and I remember getting caught up on that phrase there. Not caught up because it was tough to remember, <laughs> but it just, it just struck me in a way it never had before. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. It kind of rolls off our tongue. We don't really think about it. It's very simple. And that's exactly why I think it's so offensive. God is talking to the Israelites here. The ones who had the law. The ones who knew what good was. And God is condescending himself to their level and saying, you've got to learn to do good, you who already know what good is. He speaks to them like they're spiritual infants, like they're babies that don't know good from wrong. So God gives them a few examples of what it looks like. Seek justice. God's concerned with justice, isn't he? Christians, too, need to be concerned with justice, warriors for fairness and equity. We, we should be the ones known for correcting oppression. When we see it in the workplace, we should stand up and fight against it. When we see it in the streets of the city, we should cry out on behalf of those who are being oppressed. When we see abuse in someone's family, we should be standing on the side of the abused woman or child. When we see someone being bullied in the dorms, we should stand up for that person, even at the cost of our own reputation. Why? Because God is a God of justice, and therefore we need to be a people of justice. He says, bring that justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Orphans and widows back then were two of the most oppressed and socially disadvantaged people in that ancient world. Oftentimes, even slaves had more economic stability than orphans and widows. So because of their vulnerable position in society, orphans and widows had to rely on the goodness of the people around them in order to survive. Well, who are those orphans? Who are those widows in our society? Who are the orphans and widows among us? I, I think of the unborn child living still in a society that strives to dehumanize and murder them. Blood is on our hands if we do not cry out for those who have no voice. I think of the immigrant 
whether illegal or not, they are human beings in desperate condition and need the help of compassionate people like you and me. I think of the literal orphans, the literal widows, people who rely on the heartfelt love of the church. These are the people we have to be standing up for. Judah, on the other hand, turned a blind eye towards them. I mean, Israel was really good at putting on religious services. Their Sunday services were hopping. Their, their offering was huge. Their seats were filled. Their programs were buzzing with excitement. And meanwhile, orphans and widows were literally starving around them. Do you know how easy it is for that to be me and you? you know how easy it is to slip into that? Cairn University, cleanse yourself of religious hypocrisy. Internal righteousness is far more important than external ritual. This is a text that begs us to ask the question, what is the condition of my heart? Do I love my neighbor? Do I love my enemy? Have I sought the good of the oppressed in this society? Have I shared the gospel with anybody lately? What is the condition of your heart? Now, please don't imagine that all of these are just external commands. This is not a works-based salvation message here. External rituals do not change the heart. What we do is a manifestation of who we are, but there is nothing we can do to transform ourselves in the way that God desires. God alone is our hope to save us. If we stopped at verse 17, this would be a works-based salvation message. But the text goes on. So let's read verses 18 to 20 to close this out. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Can you hear the heart of your Savior in these words? Come now. Come now. That's an invitation. God says, let's reason together. Reason together is a word usually used in the courtroom. You might even translate it argue or, or decide a case together. That's probably a little too strong for this context here. But the idea is that God wants to spell out for them the two ways this court case can go. He says, your, skin, your sins are like scarlet right now, blood red, but they can be made white like snow. Your sins are red like crimson, but they can be white like a sheep's wool. That is the power of the gospel. From, from red to white. Only the gospel can change religious hypocrisy. Only the gospel can change a heart for Christ. Jesus died. He took your sin upon his shoulders. He shed his blood, and the application of that blood upon your heart has the power to change you from scarlet to snow, from crimson to white wool. What a beautiful God we worship. This, by the way, this whole text, I think, is perfectly illustrated in that passage from Luke's gospel. Remember that passage where the Pharisee is standing there and he's praying, God, I thank you that I am not like all those other people. And then he goes and he lists all the religious and the external things that he has done to impress God. And meanwhile, the sinner stands far off, beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And God says, that's the prayer I'm listening to. 
That's the prayer God wants to hear from us. Here in Isaiah, God says, let's reason together about this. I can make your sins as white as snow. I can purify your hearts. And he gives them these two possibilities. He says, look, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And I love the clever wordplay here. God says, well, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. So it's either eat or be eaten. Eat by being blessed by God because you've cast yourself upon the goodness of God. You've repented of your sins. You've cleansed your heart. Or be eaten in judgment because you've refused and you've rebelled and you've disobeyed. Now what's important to keep in mind is that Judah is hearing these words before the judgment of God has come upon her. She's observed some of that judgment with northern Israel. But this is all before the Babylonians came marching on in. Judah was on the brink, but she was not yet there. Isaiah is giving her a glimpse of her future and showing her what life will be like if, if she remains stubborn and unrepentant in sin. Israel needed to open her eyes and recognize that internal righteousness is far more important than external religiousness and ritual. Israel was an expert at that external ritual. But she needed to cleanse herself inwardly in order to avoid that purifying judgment. And I would submit to you that no matter where you're at in this semester, whether you're excited to come back, whether you're dreading what's coming, whether you're wrestling with your spirituality and your relationship with God or relationship with others, we all have to submit ourselves to the heart of this text. Where are our hearts? When we come before God, do we pray and thank him for all those good things that we've done? Do we thank him for all the things we've accomplished religiously? Or do we beat our breast and say, God, help me. I am a sinner in need of you. All the external ritual in the world means nothing to God if it's not coming from a heart that has been cleansed and pure. So I'm just gonna take a minute of silence here. I'm gonna take a minute and I'm gonna ask you to reflect on these words, to reflect on your heart, and to ask God to do a cleansing work within you as we begin this semester together. And after a minute or two, I'll close this out in a word of prayer.
Gracious Father, wash us. Make our hearts clean. Remove the evil of our deeds from before your eyes. May our sin so scarlet become white as snow. May our hearts so crimson become white like wool. Lord, I pray that you would cleanse this place of any external ritual devoid of internal righteousness. Transform the hearts of students, faculty, staff alike. And may we serve you truly, genuinely, because of what you have done for us. And I pray these blessings upon this semester in Jesus' name. Amen.